Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Me to Exodus chapter number 20, the book of Exodus chapter 20. And if you found your place and if you're willing and able, let's stand together out of respect for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter number 20. And last week we were in verse number three, which is the first of the Ten Commandments. We've said several things already in this uh, study about the Ten Commandments, but uh, none more important than how the commandments begin. And they begin in verse number one of this chapter. God spake all these words. Man, the Ten Commandments matter because the Ten Commandments come from God Himself for you and for me for our lives. God intends for us to live in a certain way. God intends for us to do and not do certain things. And we find that here in Exodus chapter number 20. You, we saw verse number 2. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. We said that, that matters. Why? Because the Ten Commandments were not God's requirement for being set free. The Ten Commandments were God's commandments, His instruction for living after the children of Israel were set free, right? So this is the difference between Christianity and false religion, right? Christianity says, here's God's grace, here's God's love. It's by grace, through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So salvation from God is a free gift. False religion says, if you want a relationship with God, then you better do these ten things, and you better never violate them in any way. And if you do enough good, and, and you stay away from all the bad, then in the end, just maybe, God will accept you. So that's, that's, not, the, that's not the premise of the Ten Commandments. These people have already been set free. God's already brought them to themselves He's already set them free from bondage. And then, having set them free, having claimed them, having redeemed them, here are the Ten Commandments, okay? So, verse number one, or, or verse number three, rather, is commandment number one. And let's read that together, because I feel like it's a really good thing for us to spend time looking at, thinking about the Ten Commandments. Verse number three. You want to read it together? Let's try it. Let's try to put a little energy and effort into it this evening, all right? Verse Three, ready? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. That's the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We spent time last week talking about how that God desires from you, from me, to worship, to serve Him exclusively. He is not one of many gods. He is the one and only God. And as the one and only God, we should serve Him, we should pursue Him, we should go after Him. Commandment number two then starts in verse number four, and it goes down to verse number six. All right, let's read this, read all these verses together, verse four, five, and six. Let's read them all together. Verse number four, ready? Let's read. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, 
nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now you probably understand that second commandment at the beginning part of the verse. You probably understand the second commandment as this, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Right? So, so no idols. Thou shalt not have any idols, anything crafted out of wood, out of gold, out of precious metal. And you should not bow yourself down to them as if this were the express image of God. That's what he's saying. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Man, what does this mean for you? And what does this mean for me today? That's what we'll study for the next few moments this evening. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Father, we thank you for your word. Use your word in our hearts and lives. And in Jesus' name we pray. And all the church said together, amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. You remember an illustration that helps us um, see the second commandment being violated. You'll remember the, the story from Acts chapter number 17. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is visiting Athens. Athens is a world-class city. It's one that's known for its history, its learning, its architecture. Athens is known for its great contribution to culture and to society. And yet, the story in Acts 17 is while Paul is visiting this city, there he is waiting for his companions to show up so he can continue on his missionary journey. It's there in Acts that Paul is struck by something uniquely. In fact, I want you to see it. Go into the New Testament and find the book of Acts, and then look for chapter 17. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Okay, so the book of Acts, verse or chapter 17. I want you to see this verse in particular, verse number 16. Acts chapter 17, verse number 16. So while Paul is waiting in Athens for his companions to show up so they can continue on in their missionary journey, Paul there is moved because of what he sees in this city. Does he... Does he does he fall in love with their architecture? No. Is he, is he impressed by their intellect? No. Is he amazed by uh, the diversity of, of the city? No. Is, is he impressed by all the different uh, selections of food? No, that's, that's, not it. that's not it either, right? All the things that you would think make a city remarkable. Hey, look at verse number 17. Or verse 16 of chapter 17. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him for when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. The whole city was completely given over to this singular idea of worshiping false Gods of worshiping false idols, of worshiping idols made with man's hands. Later on, Paul would remark about the city. He would say, I can see that you're very religious. 
You have temples and you have rituals and, and you have religion. You go in to worship, but you do not know what you are doing. You do not understand the God that you are worshiping. However sincere you may be in your worship, you are going about it in the wrong way. So when Paul stands in Athens and he says, let me tell you of the unknown God to you. Right? You have a God for everything, but you don't know the one and true living God. And Paul says this wonderful passage there. He says, I declare him, this unknown God, I declare him unto you. And no matter how deep their learning was, no matter how rich their culture was, no matter how um, uh, in, uh, edu educated their, their society was, no matter how sincere they were, they were worshiping God in a way that was not pleasing to God. Sincerity, hear me on this point, Sincerity is not the measure of truth. Sincerity is not the measure of truth. However sincere someone is, does not make what they are sincere about true or false. They can be sincere about it, and they can commit all kinds of resources to it, and they can deeply believe in it, but that does not make it right, and that does not make it necessarily wrong. And many people think this, though. Many people say things like, well, he, he means well, right? You say things like that. Well, well he's really trying. He, he's, he's, very, he's very sincere. Well, well, at least they showed up. He's doing the best that he can. And yet Paul, when he sees this whole city given over to idolatry sincerely, wholeheartedly, the best they can, worshiping these graven images, these false gods, these wooden and golden statues in idols, in, in idol, Paul's response was not, well, they're trying the best that they can. No, Paul's response is that he is provoked in his spirit to see these very smart people going about their worship in the wrong way. That illustration from Acts 17, is it, it clearly illustrates what we are given in the second commandment. So I want you to go back now to Exodus chapter number 20, and there we'll hang out. The, the first commandment, was against worshiping the wrong God. The second commandment is against worshiping God in the wrong way. The people of Athens were guilty of both. They were worshiping God the wrong way and they were worshiping the wrong God. They, they were ignorant of God who had raised Jesus from the dead, but they also worshiped God in a way that God did not approve of. And you and I can be guilty of the very same thing. We say, Pastor, in what way? Well, generally speaking, the, the second commandment forbids worshiping God the way that we choose rather than the way that God demands. The second commandment prohibits, forbids us from worshiping God the way that we choose rather than worshiping God the way that God demands. The way that God demands or commands. This, the second commandment, is, it's against this. It's, a, it's against the idea of self-willed worship. Well, I think God is like this. You ever heard somebody say that before? Well, I don't.
think God would do that? How many have ever heard somebody argue something like that, right? Well, that's not the way that I interpret how God would do. Well, I don't think God should ever do this. Or how could God send someone to hell, right? These are just kind of the ideas in our culture that we can kind of make up our own version of who God is, of what God does, of what God's like, of what God must look like, of all these things that we think God must do. And the second commandment strictly prohibits any kind of self-willed worship. That the worship of God is not up for discussion. The worship of God is not one that's up, that, that, that's, that's debatable. That God desires for us to worship Him and Him alone, but God also desires for us to worship Him in a way that's pleasing and honoring to His name and in a way that causes Him to be uh, valued and glorified and, and, and caused to be uh, as worthy as we say he is and as he really is. And God demands us to worship him in a certain way. And God demands for us to worship him in the right way and avoid worshiping him in the wrong way. So I, I think that's two things specifically, okay? I think that's two things specifically. I don't think you have these in your notes, but I want you to jot them to the side. Or maybe we got some blanks for you to fill in, maybe. I'm not for sure what your handout looks like. So, so scribble it to the side. Two things specifically I think the second commandment prohibits. I think first, it prohibits that we are not to make images that represent God in any form. We are prohibited from making any image and then saying about that image, this is the representation of God. God is a spirit, Jesus said. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This is, this is, the, this is the idea of, of, of the God that we serve. We are not to make images that represent God in any form. And I think the second thing it strictly prohibits is that we are not to worship, it, worship images of any kind. So we are not to make images that we then say these images represent God and we are not to worship images of any kind. Let me tell you what I don't think the second commandment is talking about. I do not believe that God is outlawing or prohibiting or forbidding any kind of painting or, or art or aesthetics that uh, would consider him. I don't think God is out, uh, outlawing uh, stained glass windows. How many of you know where a few of those are around the building, right? I don't think God is outlawing those sorts of things. In fact, really fun study that we'll get to in a few chapters is all of the aesthetics that God tells Moses to make sure is included in the, the tabernacle. All of the aesthetics, all of these these. Uh, art forms that were supposed to be used in the tabernacle or with the priest clothing. They were supposed to have these, uh, this beautiful decoration across the bottom of the robes. They were supposed to be images of palm trees planted or, or, or sewn rather onto the curtain. The ark was supposed to have these cherubs over the top of it with both wings fully extending forward. That God himself, a really fun study is God himself would give his spirit to the architecture uh, or to the architects 
And while they were building the temple and while they were designing it, God himself, his spirit would fill these men and women who were supposed to create the priest robes. And they were supposed to sew them together. And they were supposed to form them and fashion them so that the priest could wear them. God himself, his spirit said, I will give my spirit to them so that while they do this architectural work or while they sew these uh, uh, things together, my spirit would be on them in a way that would cause them and their their work, their sowing would represent my glory and my spirit will fill them. That's a really, really fun study. I can't wait to get to that chapter because I think it's very insightful for how you and I see our work, right? How you and I see our contribution to the kingdom of God. So his spirit would inspire the craftsmen, if you will. God is not, out, God is not against beauty. What God is prohibiting, though, is God is prohibiting infusing an object with any sort of spiritual efficacy, with, with any sort of spiritual power. God is prohibiting us from looking at whatever it may be, a pulpit, a cross, a building, a cross necklace, a, a vason of water, a, a specific altar, a specific site, a specific object. God is prohibiting us from infusing any sort of spirituality and saying, well, if as long as I have this cross necklace around my neck, well then, God is now going with me as I go forward. God is prohibiting us from that. As if some man-made object could bring us closer to God. Or as if some man-made object could represent God. As if some man-made object could help us in our relationship or our, our, our conversation or communion with God in any way. We see all kinds of examples of this in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 34. You remember the golden calf? How many remember that story? And they took all the gold that they have from Egypt and they throw it into the fire as Moses is up on the hill. And then Aaron fashions this golden calf. And then, you remember what they did? Remember what Aaron specifically said about that feast, about that calf? They have this huge feast. They have this golden calf that they raise up, and they're singing, and they're dancing all around it. And then they proclaimed a feast unto God at the sight of the calf. The, the people were literally declaring, this feast and that golden statue, it is for Yahweh. It is for God, because he brought us up out of Egypt. Do you see what's happening? What they thought is they thought they were worshiping Yahweh. They thought they were worshiping God. They thought they were worshiping the God who delivered them out of Egypt. They, they did not, they didn't raise up a calf and sing and dance and proclaim a feast to the God Dagon. That's not what they said. They said, no, no, this is for the God of Yahweh. What did they do? They infused a spirituality. They infused this kind of spiritual power to a man-made object. And that is specifically the thing that God asks us to avoid. So whatever their intention was, however sincere they were, they were wrong. Whatever their intention was, and however sincere they were, they were sincerely wrong. So a simple question. Do you remember the story? How many of you remember the story of the, of the calf there at the bottom of the hill? How many of you, and, and was God pleased with that? Did God go, well, they mean well. At least they tried. Was that God's spirit? 
No, it wasn't God's spirit at all. No, God's spirit was, Moses, let's me and you start over, right? And God is strictly and specifically prohibiting us from worshiping him as a worshiping image of him as any representation of who he is, of what he has, and God is strictly prohibiting us from infusing to any specific object, any man-made object, any kind of spiritual power or any kind of spirituality, no matter how sincere we may be in doing so. No matter how sincere you and I may be. You remember in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when they take the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant becomes to them like this lucky charm. And they think, oh, we got the Ark of the Covenant, and as long as we have that, well then, well then we can never lose. How many of you remember, remember that, right? They did the same thing. They, they, they infused this spirituality to the Ark of the Covenant. They do the same thing with the temple. Jeremiah chapter 7, God is punishing his people because, and, and, and while God, in Jeremiah 7, really fun study, you should read it for homework tonight. Jeremiah 7, while God is disciplining his people, they keep chanting to him, yeah, but we have the temple, yeah, but we have the temple, yeah, but we have the temple, as if the temple were the representation of God. Same idea. They, the, the, the people of Israel thought the temple made them invisible, in, invincible. The people of Israel thought the ark made them invincible. The people of Israel thought that this golden calf made them invincible. And all that was was another form of idolatry. And God strictly prohibits it. That even though God commanded the temple to be built, even though God commanded the Ark of the Covenant to be built, even though God did lead them out of Egypt, God strictly prohibits the, the representation of him in any kind of fa in form or fashion in something made with man's hands. And yet this is the proclivity of us all. Read Romans 1. Insert plug for Romans study on Sunday morning, right? That when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. But they made unto them. They, they made God's image like the, that of four-footed beasts and creeping things. They, this is a far better idea of God than, than what the Bible depicts, right? They fell into idolatry. Why? Because they thought that these things would, the ark, the temple, the golden calf, they thought that these things would or could save them. And just before we go any farther... You and I are guilt, you and I can be guilty of the very same thing. You and I can be guilty of infusing some sort of spirituality to objects made with man's hands. I'm thankful for the buildings that God's given us. How many of you are thankful for the buildings God's given us? Yeah, me too. But they're just buildings. They're just buildings. I'm thankful for nice church furniture. I mean, this pulpit's really nice. How many of you like it? You should say yes. I picked this out specifically. Okay. I'm going to be greatly offended if you say no. I'm thankful for nice church furniture. But look here. It's just church furniture. That's it. We can be guilty of doing the same things. Well, I wear this cross necklace because that... That's God going with me as I go into the workplace. 
No, no, God doesn't go with you in the form of a cross necklace. God goes with you in a much greater way. And the way that God goes with us is by his spirit in our heart through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can be prone to these same ideas where we infuse into these things and others some sort of spiritual power or some sort of spiritual energy as if these things themselves make us closer to God. And many, many churches have become a museum of faith rather than an army or a hospital. Why? Because they revel in having all of these things that represent spiritual power or energy that you can't touch that because if you do, oh man, you're going to get leprosy if you touch the pulpit, right? No, that's not the way it works. The, sec the second commandment, if, if, we're, if we're being honest, the second commandment actually is not very difficult for us to understand. What does take a little more explanation, it's where we want to hang out tonight, what does take a little more explanation is this. Look about halfway down through the second commandment. Verse number five. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. How many of you, when we read that, thought, what does that mean? <laughs> Wait a second. What's that about? That, that idea is found in other passages. Numbers chapter 14, Exodus chapter 34, Jeremiah chapter 32. That same quotation is used. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. What is that about? How many of you wondered what that was about? Let me see. Four people. Okay. Well, then, we don't have a lot. Let's go home. All right, wonderful. <laughs> now, let's, let's, expl let's explain it. What does it mean? What, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not, it is not a reference to generational curses. It is not a reference to some sort of familial, demonic oppression. It does not mean that a righteous child, used loosely, that a righteous child is punished for the sins of a wicked father or a wicked mother. That is not what he's talking about. So, well, how do you know that's not what he's talking about? Well, I'll show you. Thank you for asking. Go to, go to Ezekiel with me. Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel in chapter 18 seems to be trying to correct this kind of ideal, this view that the children of Israel developed from that, that verse and others, visiting the iniquity of the father upon the children, third and fourth generations. Ezekiel is trying to correct that view. Right? What the children of Israel, in Ezekiel, what the children of Israel had adopted was they adopted this idea. Well, mom and dad weren't so good so that means I can't do any good. And then the children of Israel, then there's another section, they adopt this idea, well, mom and dad are good, so we're good, right? Because the same idea. Well, my mom and dad were Christian, so that kind of makes me Christian. 
Well, when, when did, I ask people sometimes, when did you become a Christian? Well, I've kind of always been a Christian. You know, my parents were. How many of you have ever heard something like that before, right? What that says, that's not how it works, right? God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Sometimes we say things like, well, they're a second generation Christian. There's no such thing. Each person must come to their own decision about their relationship with God. Christianity is not a virus that you catch. It's a relationship that you enter into. It's the same, it's the same idea that's prevalent here. Well, my, my parents were good, so I'm good. My parents were bad, so I'm bad. So Ezekiel seems to be trying to correct that. My mom and dad, they were scoundrels. They were bums. They were gangsters. They were drug addicts. So guess what? I'm in big trouble because that's now what I'm stuck with. It's aligned in the stars. That's in my DNA. It's what I have to do, right? Ezekiel chapter 18. Are you there? Did I give you enough time to get there? Ezekiel 18. All right, verse number 20. Verse number 20. Let's set it up. Verse number 19. Why? Doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father? When the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he surely, he shall surely live. Verse number 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The, righteous of, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So, so, so the warning in Exodus is this. Watch, watch here. The warning in Exodus is about God's judgment on those who walk in wicked ways. Where did they learn those wicked ways? They learned those wicked ways from their parents or from their grandparents. And if you learned wicked ways from your, your parents or grandparents and you choose to walk in those ways, then there will be consequence on you just like there was consequence on them. And Ezekiel is talking about those who choose to leave the wicked ways of their parents or their grandparents. Your grandparents and parents, they did wicked things. They did awful things. They did bad things. And you see it as wicked or awful or bad. And you say, that's not what I want. That's not good or righteous living. And so I'm choosing to not live that way. I don't want my life to go that same direction. So, so two things are happening. One, in, in Exodus chapter 20, it sounds like you suffer because of the decisions that your parents made. And then Ezekiel makes it sound like that God's not going to punish you because of the decisions that your parents made. So, so which is it? And that's the question. Well, which is it then? Both. The answer would be yes. Well, which is it? Yes. Well, that's not really helpful, right? Well, let's, let's try to get a better answer than that. The context of Ezekiel is that the children of Israel are in exile. They're in captivity. They've been led astray into captivity. God allowed them to go into captivity because of the false worship and idolatry that their parents and grandparents committed. And now the children of Israel in Ezekiel, now they're wondering, are we doomed? Are we stuck in this? There's an entire generation of exiles that have grown up. 
They've grown up. They've known nothing but captivity. And now growing up in captivity, they're going, is, is this what we're destined for? Is this what we're stuck in? Because our parents made certain decisions and now we can't change it. And what God is saying in Ezekiel is, yes, you can change it. Repent. Turn to me. Follow after me. And I will reward you righteousness for righteousness. And I will reward you righteousness for repentance and go after me and serve me and forsake the false gods of your parents and come wholeheartedly after me and you'll belong to me and I'll belong to you and I will be a God unto you. Later on he says, and I'll be a father unto you. What's the implication of that? He's saying, repent, turn away from the ways that they taught you, from the things they did and live in a way that you know is right and good and godly. In Exodus, with these, look here, this is important. So, so Ezekiel is to kids grown up in captivity who are wondering if they're doomed for the rest of their lives because of the decisions and mistakes that their parents have made. In Exodus, God is teaching these people who were former slaves what it means to follow the Lord. And he is teaching them the importance and the seriousness He's impressing on their hearts the importance and the seriousness of disobeying the Lord. And when you disobey the Lord, there is some sort of impact on your children. That's what he's saying. There's some sort of impact on your children. When you choose to be disobedient to the Lord, it will bear consequences in your family. Verse, verse 5 of our text Exodus 20, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generations. So what he's saying is the children share. Look here. The children in this situation share in the consequence of the decision that these parents and grandparents made. And then Ezekiel comes along and Ezekiel says, yes, but if you turn from their sin and if you turn to God, then this punishment from sin, this consequence that you're experiencing because of sin will also be turned away from you. Your fathers will not escape it, but you can escape it. What, what he's saying is, you cannot, look here, you cannot excuse your disobedience and sin by pointing to your upbringing your history, your culture. That God does punish for sin. Well, I thought God was loving and clouds and butterflies and balloons and sunshine. And Well, that's not the God of the Bible. That's something you made up in a fairy tale. That's something Disney sold you because you don't find that in the Bible. So the phrase, visiting the iniquity, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Visiting the iniquity of the Father. Visiting the iniquity, that's a very interesting phrase. And what he means by that, look, look here, what he means by that is, he will simply let sin run its natural course. I want to talk about this in a couple of weeks in our Roman study. You know what the wrath of God is? The wrath of God is not lightning bolts and leprosy. You know what the wrath of God is? God's saying, okay, go ahead. 
You think you know better than I do? Go ahead. And God removing his steadfast, protective hand from your life. Visiting the iniquity means God pulls his protective hand off and says, if you think you know better on how your life should go, you think you know better on how to use your sexuality than I do. You think you know better on how to use your money than what I do. You think you know better on what to do with your worship or your time or your Sundays than what I say. You think you know better on whether you should have this flirtatious thing at the office. You think you know better on whether you should or shouldn't engage in such and such conversation or in such and such entertainment. God removes that steadfast, protective hand from our life. That's literally what the word visiting the iniquity, the words visiting the iniquity, what it means. One of the worst things God could do is remove his hand off your life. And that's why you read in Romans 1, and God gave them up, and God gave them over, and God gave them over. What's he saying? He's saying God said, okay, I'll give you up to your own idea. I'll give you over to your own way. I'll give you over to your own way. Oh, that we would live lives in such a way that God would not remove his hand. It's the same idea here. So many people think, well, if I could just get, I could just get God off my back. Oh, well, that's one of the very worst things that could ever happen in your life. Oh, if I just didn't, I mean, I'm like, I do stuff. I just want to be able to do what I want to do and not feel bad about it. No, no, that's the greatest gift that God will ever do for you. Is speak to your heart and prick your heart and, and, and show you, speak to your conscience and Knock on your hearts. You know better than that. One of the greatest things God will ever do for you is allow his spirit to minister, look here, conviction to your heart. And one of the worst things is that God would pull back and say, fine, you want want to have your own way? Go ahead and have your own way. Visiting the iniquity means God goes. You want your own way? Go ahead. And removes his hand. So here's two ideas. You got them in your notes, I think. Let's, let's do them quick. Number one. Two lessons, what they mean for us. Number one. Your parents do not create your future. Your parents do not create your future. They shape it. They influence. They're instrumental in helping you find it. They, they are the authorities that God has placed into your life, but your parents do not create your future. Look, we've said this over and over and over and over again about our relationship with God. It is a personal, individual relationship with God, which means this. Your relationship with God is not between you and the pastor. It's between you and God. Your relationship with God is not me and you and God. It's you and God. And my relationship with God is not between me and you and him. It's me and him. It's an individual, personal relationship with him. So this verse is teaching us that your parents do not create your future. So, so hear me, young adults in the room. I know we have some that are out in the Young Pros service, but hear me, teenagers, children. 
Look here. You are not locked in by the obedience or the disobedience of your parents or grandparents. That's simply because your parents obeyed the Lord and you were blessed because you were under their influence for a time does not mean that when you are on your own and you choose to go your own way, live your own way, do your own things, that you will by default, because of who your parents were, receive the blessing of God in your life. But it also means the, the exact opposite of the spectrum. It does not mean that simply because your parents were disobedient or did wrong or sinful things, it does not mean that you now have to have the full life punishment, the third and fourth generation of always living in their punishment for their sin. No, repent and turn to him. Forsake the false gods of your fathers and go after God himself and he will be to you a father. Your parents do not create your future. Number two, your parents will Make that choice easier or harder. All right, so that's number two. Number two is to the parents. Number one is to the kids. Number two, mom and dad, you do make that choice easier or harder. Mom and dad, parents, grandparents in the room, you can, by your faithfulness or by your faithlessness, Give your children a downhill slide to righteousness or a downhill slide to wickedness. That's what Ezekiel is teaching us. Ezekiel is teaching us, and the same thing that, that Exodus is teaching us, that we are all responsible moral agents. That each one of us individually must answer to the Lord specifically and face the consequences of our own decisions and actions. That's what Ezekiel is reminding us of. And what Exodus is teaching us of is that our parents, they do not create our future, but they do go, look, they do go a long way in shaping our future and in making the choice for us, obedience or disobedience, easier or harder. They, they, they make that choice for us either simple or more complicated because of their obedience or because of their faithfulness or unfaithfulness. I'm a pastor. I have four great kids. God has done a whole lot for me in my life. But if I really look at my life, if I really evaluate my 37 years so far, which, by the way, is not that old. Tired of hearing that. If I really evaluate it, I have experienced in my life thousands of blessings and advantages that some people in this world have not experienced. I have two parents who love each other. I have two parents who raised me in a good environment. They brought me to church every Sunday morning for Sunday school, Sunday morning for church, Sunday night for evening service, Wednesday night for midweek Bible study, 
I'm just thankful we didn't have church any other day. Otherwise, we would have been there. I have three siblings, all who walk with the Lord. My brother pastors in Tampa, Florida. My older brother pastors in North Carolina. My sister and her husband pastor in West Virginia. My parents raised me in a safe neighborhood. I can't remember one evening where I ever wondered what we were going to eat that night. I never in my life had someone offer me drugs. I'm pretty sure I lived a pretty fear-free life. I think the scariest thing that I've probably ever done as a kid was walk through the dark church building, which can be pretty scary. You want proof? Just stay in here. When we turn these lights off in here, you'll be out of here pretty fast. My parents put me in a great school. I received a good education. I could keep going. I, I have received a thousand blessings of which I did absolutely nothing for. You can call it blessing. You can call it advantage. You can call it favor. You can call it privilege. You can call it any number of things. But what I do think God calls every one of us to recognize is that to whom much is given, much is required. And I answer to God for all 10,000 blessings, advantages, privileges, and favors that he's granted to me. And you answer to God for all the blessings, advantages, and privileges that God's given to you. All, all of that to say simply a word to the parents in the room. That you can set your children up by your faithfulness where you make it easier for them to choose to follow the Lord, to go after the Lord. Or you can set your children up with unfaithfulness where going after the Lord becomes more difficult for them. I've been faced with difficult decisions in my life. Whether I'd go to this party with these kinds of people whether I'd hang out with this kind of person, whether I would be this kind of person. I could keep going on. But by the time that I had to make those very life-transforming decisions, I, I, I had already had a lot put in me by my mom and dad, by faithful pastors, church leaders, mentors. It was, it was relatively easy for me to choose to follow the Lord. That was not a difficult struggle in my life. I also recognize that someone who has not had those 10,000 advantages, things that are out of their control, where it becomes more difficult for them to choose what is right. But hear me, whether it was easy or whether it was difficult, you are still responsible for your own life choices. We live in a society of victims. And what the scripture calls us to recognize is that you are responsible for your own choices. Your parents do not create your future. But hear me, mom and dad, you can sure, by your faithfulness or unfaithfulness, make that easier or more difficult 
for your children to choose. This word in Exodus, I think it really helps us think about what, what sort of trajectory we want to put our children on, doesn't it? Look, look at this. God will show mercy, verse 6. God will show mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. It's, it's, not, it's not a math formula. It's, it's poetry. It's poetic. What he's saying is he visits the iniquity. He, he pulls his hand back off of disobedience. And that consequence of disobedience plays out in the life of our children. They suffer from our own disobedience, our own lack of faithfulness. But, but li listen to it. Third and fourth generation. But mercy is showed, it's shown to who? Thousands. Thousands, that's what he's saying. It's po he's, he's showing you a contrast. He's showing you a contrast. He's saying that when we choose to walk in his ways, when we choose to go after him, when we choose to be obedient to him, when we go after him, yes, we're all individual moral agents, but when we go after God, it makes it easier for those who come after us to, to choose to follow God as well. I, I, think, I think the contrast of verse 5 and 6 is God's memory for godliness is better than his memory for ungodliness. Visits the iniquity of the father, the third and fourth generation. But he, he shows mercy to thousands. Right, that's what he's saying. I think his memory for godliness is better than his memory for ungodliness. Which ought to be relieving to all of us in the room. Our God is slow to anger. Our God is slow to anger. But our God is a just judge who desires for us to go after him in a way that causes our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, that causes it to be easier for them to decide to choose and go after him than it was for us. So let me ask you a question then. This is it, we're done. How are you setting your children up? How are, you, how are you setting the children of this church up? Are you setting them up in a way that it's easy for them to go after God? It's easy for them? It's, it, providing for them 10,000 advantages that you did not have? Are you setting them up in a way that, man, that, that trajectory, man, we're all individual moral agents, yes, but that, that trajectory makes it makes us so much simpler for us to choose to follow God. We're setting them up in a way that leads them to God, leads them to holiness, leads them in this way. We're setting them up in a way where that man choosing to go after God is far more difficult for them because we didn't prepare them for it. 